Canto 14 of The Paradise begins as Thomas Aquinas finishes his exposition really of how love and intelligence can be united and come together to bring a fuller vision of the divine. I think you can think of it like this, that whereas love with its sense of longing and desire can reach over the horizons that we currently fully understand, so intelligence brings that desire and longing towards us into view by giving it articulation, by discerning it and by filling it out. And so love and intelligence have been seen to come together in what Thomas has been saying. And Canto 14 begins with Dante saying that it brought ripples of joy within him to hear this. He likens it to a tub of water into which has been dropped a stone and ripples move out from the centre and then bounce off from the sides and move back towards the centre. It's a lovely image um, of two things coming together, outward movement, inward movement, love, intelligence, in a unity, the circle um, that is dynamically moving with um, its energy. And then Beatrice speaks and says that Dante now has a question that he's not quite yet able to form. He's not quite aware that he needs to ask it. It's a rather brilliant moment. Dante's been shown so much already, and yet all that he's been shown can only precipitate the desire for more. And Beatrice, in this moment, recognises that enthusiasm, that love coming off Dante, and so says that here, she thinks, is the question that is about to bloom within him. And it has to do with strands that have been weaving more implicitly through their overt discussion concerning the nature of, well, one phrase, one way of putting it would be the divinization of humanity, the divinization actually of creation as a whole. You remember that Thomas has described how natural processes reach up towards the heavens and that divine breath comes down and fills it. And this differs from creation in the heavens above, which fully reflect the divine light, aren't part of natural processes. But within the Christian dispensation, as I think within other spiritual traditions, is recognised that ultimately everything is contained within the divine. And so ultimately everything will return to the divine, which raises the question of the divinization of those things which at the moment only partially reflect divine life. A more narrow way of putting it within Christian doctrine is the notion of what's sometimes called the general resurrection. And broadly here the question is how everything is returned to God. Beatrice asks it herself in a very direct way. She is focused on the experience of this life. And so she says to Thomas, you know, how will it be that this radiance and light which you enjoy now, which is so palpably present before us, how will that be divinized when you become whole again? You become all that a human being might be, which includes having a fleshly body. There's an echo here of the previous cantos because Christ has been talked about. 
and Christ, of course, is the perfect complement of divine and human, of body and spirit. And so this is a foretaste for all humanity. And Beatrice says, you know, how can that be? And in particular, she says, you know, how will you be able to tolerate this vision when the body, when the flesh is restored to you? How can it be that your eyes, which can barely look into the sun on earth, will be able to look not just into the sun, but into the divine vision in all its glory? So it's really striking the way that she puts it. She is constantly being driven by vision, by sight, by light, by love, by the intelligence that can bring all these things together. And it turns out that the answer Beatrice and Dante receive is similarly driven by vision. It's all about what you can become capable of seeing. And seeing is to see into more depth and is so to see things being transformed before your eyes and that transformation, that still incarnational dynamic will operate when Thomas Aquinas and all humanity, all creation in fact, is returned to the divine, which is what um, a new voice speaks of now. It's said that a gentle light comes forward. Um, it speaks much as the angel Gabriel must have done to Mary at the Annunciation, um, which is an interesting allusion because, again, I think it stresses this dynamic of new creation, incarnation. Um, that is the process by which things are led back to the divine. Commentators discuss who this light might be, and generally the consensus that actually it is Solomon who is speaking here, the one that's been discussed in the previous canto, the one who as a king, his wisdom wasn't surpassed. And now it's striking that Dante gives Solomon this account of divinization. Dante is stressing the novelty, the radicality of what he's seen and is now trying to communicate by having heard these things from a voice that wouldn't have been expected um, in the Christian mind, certainly in the medieval mind. Um, he's prompting his first readers and us to listen really carefully to what's been said by having an unexpected voice speak. And what Solomon, given it is Solomon, explains is this link between increasing vision, fed by ardour, fed by love, that then fills up with grace and transformation to make a new creation, which is the goal, the end point um, that they're all headed towards. Um, heaven itself is in transition. Um, heaven is full of dynamism and life. It doesn't stop when you go to heaven in a way it only just begins. And the transformation that Solomon describes is familiar in one way from the New Testament, particularly the writings of Paul, where Paul says that whilst we die like seeds, um, we're reborn like plants into a new creation. Um, we are born with a physical body, we're resurrected with a spiritual body. So this is about continuity, it is a body, but also discontinuity. Um, there's something radically remade in the new creation. It also reflects the accounts of the resurrection in the Gospels, you know, where Jesus is recognised, he has a body, 
um, but this body can move in and out of rooms, um, sometimes it eats, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes actually it's present and the disciples don't recognise who it is immediately and it's only when their vision, when their ardour is um, expansive enough to see what they're looking at that then they recognise that it is Jesus. And so I think that Dante will have that in mind, it's a kind of foretaste of what will come about. But he adds in particularly this element of vision and sight, um, which actually I think is there in the Gospels. You know, Jesus's most common remark is, have you got the eyes to see? Have you got the ears to hear? Um, these things, whilst they are coming, are in a way already present around us as well. Um, they can be seen even in the here and now. And I think we can actually understand something of that when we think about how we see the physical world around us even now because it's quite clear that the sight you take to the material world directly affects what you see of the material world. Um, you can convey this in historical terms and here I'm very influenced by this figure Owen Barfield who tracked the way that our conscious awareness, our perception of the world around us changes and therefore our participation with the world around us, how that changes too. Here's a couple of details from the ancient world from around about the middle or the early part of the first millennium BC where for example ancient Greeks didn't have a word for blue which to us now seems very very striking because they lived in a beautiful blue Mediterranean world um, but what they did describe the sea and the sky as was by its quality rather than by its category. So the sea has a certain kind of rich, luscious quality, and so it's often likened to wine, whereas the sky has an expansive, luminous quality. And that rich lusciousness or that expansiveness, that luminosity is how they saw these things, and so in a way didn't need the word blue, um, which is much more of a category, and putting light into a category. Um, whether it's blue light or red light. That didn't occur to them at the time, it only came subsequently. Um, another thing to think about is how the human figure is depicted on the pots of this time. It's sometimes called the geometric period, where fi human figures have kind of wasp-like waists and expanded chests, um, large thighs, um, their heads and details on their faces um, all look very similar. Um, they definitely have an energy and a vitality, but it's as if there isn't a unified human individual, but rather people experience themselves as part of spirited masses um, moving together, you know, maybe like wheat uh, bending in the wind across a field, but also their bodies um, were experienced, I think, as gatherings of different spirited parts. So um, you know, different parts of the body, in fact, would be associated with different deities, different spirits in the world around. And the task to be human in those days was very much how to negotiate all those different spirited factions. Um, it's a polytheistic worldview that wasn't just a reflection of perceptions of the cosmos full of many gods, but was a reflection too of the, the inner world of what it was to be human, which similarly too would have been filled with many different forces and deities. 
Well, that changes with the Christian dispensation, with the birth of the individual, the sense that we have a unity within us, we have an I amness within ourselves that can then begin to, say, perceive the divine I amness, the divine one. And so monotheism comes comes to be capable of being seen. And also the intuitions of science become possible, um, that there is a science, that it's possible to tell a story of the natural world that adds up, that can be united into one through, say, laws, um, through empirical observation. That only becomes possible at this point. And so you can track this transition and see how vision, perception, changed the experience and sight of the material world. I think we're in the middle of another process of transformation where our vision, our perception and therefore our participation with the world around us is shifting again. Um, a key point of transformation is with modern physics. You know, if you ask a physicist what an electron is or what a photon is, they'll tell you they don't actually know what they can do is form equations that describe very accurately how these entities behave, but what they are in themselves they won't know. Um, perhaps the best guess is that it's patterns of energy or maybe something even more abstract like a probability wave. Um, but this is a very remarkable transformation from the 19th century idea, say, of atomism, that there were kind of little bits at the base of everything. Um, that has gone, and no doubt that will feed the imagination um, in wider ways. An example of that might be the growing interest in panpsychism, the idea that consciousness is basic in the world around us. Um, there's various kinds of panpsychism, some are more emergent, the idea that complex consciousness like ours has emerged from this cosmic background. Um, I actually prefer the versions that talk of consciousness always already being there and that the processes of creation and evolution introduce increasing diversity, complexity, freedom, exploring more and more of reality, a much more expansive notion that then is gathered up and returns to God. But nonetheless, panpsychism um, is as much an imaginative, it's about vision, it's about seeing, and then testing out, maybe in scientific ways, or in terms of what it can account for, how it can understand our experience more phenomenologically. Um, and I've no doubt that this could reach out into some of the stranger, more supernatural, paranormal experiences that people have as well as into more straightforwardly spiritual perceptions of the divine that come about through spiritual practices. Um, so you can perhaps see how we're in the middle of a transformation of our vision, our understanding of the world around us, um, where actually I think science and spirituality link together. Um, but that in itself is just an echo or a reflection of what Solomon is Solomon is talking about here. Um, you know, all things on earth are echoes or reflections of the fuller reality of the heavens. And Solomon is giving a beautiful account of that reality, that change to Dante now. And it causes all the spirits around them to rejoice. But 
it also causes a third ring of spirits to appear, Dante the poet tells us. Remember there have been these two rings of twelve lights in each ring, of which Solomon and Thomas had been one. But then a third ring appears. Even in this moment, Dante's vision is expanding. It's an even contemplating, desiring and also beginning to discern this combination of love and intelligence. That in itself brings about an expansion of vision, which I think we can sense, but also Dante says that he sees now a third ring appears. Now, what this third ring stands for has been much discussed amongst the commentators. Um, I actually like the idea that this is a reflection on an insight from Joachim. Do you remember the visionary that we'd encountered, um, who was the antagonist but now complementary pair with Bonaventure in the previous cantos? And Joachim had said that there had been an age of the father, which was the age of the one, the age of the, the beginning, the source. Then there'd been the age of the son, which was the age of creation and incarnation, the age of Christ. But there would come an age of the spirit, where a new life, a new dispensation, a new unfolding would become dominant. And I think Dante is intimating that he aligns himself with that now, even in his own vision, even in his own journey. Um, this is the extensiveness of what he's trying to communicate. You know, this isn't just illuminating a Christianity that's already understood. Um, it is using that as a wellspring for springing into a new vision of things. That, I think, is what he sees now with this third ring that appear around them. Dante calls out those sparks of light that are of the Holy Spirit, um, so he names it as to do with the Holy Spirit, um, no doubt echoing Jesus's words that the spirit of truth will come and lead you towards things that you can't understand now. And in fact, Dante says that he couldn't understand what was going on. He could just see that it was happening. Um, he can't quite recall them in his memory um, because of the novelty of this revelation. Um, he remembers Beatrice looking more and more beautiful. And so he follows her and uses her to guide him through. He does notice is that the light around them has changed. They are already in a new heaven, the heaven now of Mars. Um, there's a redness in the air. But Dante says he also spontaneously wanted to offer a sacrifice of praise. He is psychologically in a new zone. And it must have been these reflections from Solomon that enabled him to be in this new realm. Um, you know, travelling in heaven is about expansion of sight. Um, a new reality opens up before you, as it has done for him now. So that he is in the sphere of Mars tells us something about this new vision as well. It adds something to what has been said in the sphere of the sun, which brought together love and intelligence. And I think what it adds is the notion of sacrifice. This is also underlined because Dante has a vision of Christ. It's actually his first direct vision of Christ through his whole journey. And it's very hard for Dante to describe, he says, but it has certain particularities. 
So for example, it's a cross formed in a circle with equal arms rather than the normal cross as you might see in a church. He notices that as it forms before his eyes, he sees lots of ruby lights moving across these arms and realises that these are the lights of souls that are incorporated and are a part of this cross. So what this I think is stressing is that this notion of sacrifice is shining forth now before him with a symbol that's part familiar and part different. And he actually says um, in one of the verses that um, those of us who take up our cross and follow Christ will get a glimpse of what this is about. So I think what this notion of sacrifice is about and how it links to an expanse of vision is the notion of sacrifice, which is the spiritual one that sees life as a constant process of receiving and then offering back, receiving and offering back, seeing oneself in relationship to all that's around, in a process with all that's around, um, the receiving and then the offering back is saying yes to life, um, it's a sacrifice of gratitude, of thanks, as Dante had said he spontaneously realised that he needed to offer. What it enables, what it enables us to become capable of, is participating more fully in the divine life, which too is this constant outpouring, this constant cascading, this constant giving, in order to draw back and return and receive. It's to become that bit more aligned with the pulse of reality, which is what's happened with Dante now as he finds himself in this new sphere of Mars. Consciousness of Mars is appropriate because Mars does refer to that which is martial, and Dante at one point says that he heard a hymn being sung, hardly recognised any of the music or the words, it was so dazzling and ecstatic, but did catch the phrases arise and conquer. This is saying something about the power and strength of this new vision for which the spirit of Mars is appropriate. Um, it's also to do with sacrifice here transformed into the true spiritual sense of offering and receiving, you know, rather than the more mundane earthly sense of martial valour on the battlefield, say. That's rather a corruption or a diminution of the fuller Martian qualities that Dante sees now. Um, Mars was also associated with music and the end of the canto brings that very much to the fore. Dante stresses time and time again that he's only just beginning to be able to see what is unfolding before him. He uses lots of brilliant dazzling images and similes of which music form a big part. And even though in this new moment he feels to be as much in a trance as anything else, he also says to us that this sacred joy grows in perfection as it grows wise. And so we're readied at the end of Canto 14 for a new vision of things, if we can keep up with Dante, that's introduced to the themes of the sun, um, those themes of love and intelligence, this new theme of sacrifice becoming more porous to the divine reality. Coupled to this age of the spirit, the sense that Dante 
really is pushing towards new horizons, new vistas, new perceptions.